Welcome to the Trend Detection Podcast, powered by Sensei, an industry leader in using AI to drive scalable and sustainable asset performance and reliability. In part two of our series, looking back at the biggest challenges facing manufacturers in 2021, I'm joined again by Jim Davison and Fahim Khan from Make UK. In the final episode of this series, we discuss the impact of Brexit and how manufacturers can use green skills to help meet their sustainability targets. I hope you enjoy it. Look into the actual impacts of Brexit, taking aside a little bit from um, the pandemic, or do they go sort of hand in hand together uh, as um, obviously causing yeah. a great disruption? I mean, it's, it's an important question. We, I would say we don't really call it Brexit anymore. We say leaving the EU or uh, the EU exit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> nice new spin on it. No, I like it. <laughs> but um, I, I, you you almost can't separate the impact because these two things happen together. But you can see at least just immediately after the transition period ended. So we know that um, in 2020, we had a transition period where we had time to implement um, or the UK had time to negotiate the deal with the EU. And then there was January the 1st, we had something called the Trade Cooperation Agreement, which is the name that we've given to the relationship we now have in terms of exporting and importing with the EU. Um, what we saw at least in the January this year um, in the official data that exports immediately declined um, quite aggressively um, following the transition um, to the new relationship. So exports declined by approximately 40%, but that, that's not necessarily down to exporting becoming harder, but actually it was manufacturers who were maybe unsure about um, exactly what this relationship looks like. And they were maybe holding back some exports, waiting to understand the rules first before they got that, because over time we saw these um, export figures improving again, um, and they're almost returning to near pre-Brexit times, um, at least it's getting to that stage. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't any bumps on the road. I mean, we did a, a study called Six Months On from Leaving the EU, which I think we published in the middle of this year, which shows some very interesting stats about the effects that businesses faced at the very initial stages of that um, changing relationship. One of the interesting stats that I found was one in three businesses have never filled in a rules of origin certificate. So that's something that you had to do if you were exporting to the EU, you had to uh, declare whether your product was an EU product based on the amount of um, stuff that was inside of it. So if you had like a 30% German car, 20% uh, from France, but then if you had some stuff coming from India as well, you know, you had to be able to declare that this was a European good and or whether it was maybe an Indian good because there was some stuff coming from there. Um, leaving the EU has meant that the British component doesn't comply with the EU parts of it. So we have to be able to say, is this an EU good or is it actually a British good? Because then tariffs may be applied and just filling in that certificate, something that small businesses have never really done before. And that created many issues. And, and that leads on to other issues like customs um, that created, um, I guess, a lot of friction. But what we did see is that manufacturers did demonstrate quite a lot of resilience um, in that time. I mean, we saw businesses pretty much getting on with it. They didn't necessarily like these changes, but they were kind of moving forward with them, learning how to do it. Almost you could describe it as trial by fire, just try, just having a go, see what the mistakes are, fixing the process, um, arguably, Larger firms were able to implement that much quicker, but smaller firms, it took them a little bit more time. So that's, that's, that's what we've seen 
I think the impact could have been much worse, um, but it may have been hidden by the fact that COVID was also such a big impact that we won't necessarily know if Brexit itself could have been a very dramatic um, effect on, on businesses, whereas we'll never be able to actually separate those two things from each uh, other. And, and maybe we don't really need to because we know that Brexit, even if we don't have any stats behind it, it, was effect, it, it did impact manufacturers generally in a negative way, but we are seeing that coming back now. And there are some benefits that we could talk about um, as well. Yeah, well, actually, let's let's do that. I mean, maybe, Jim, you can um, come in here and um, provide some insight on that. Yeah, so so I guess at the at back end of, of 2020 and at very early 2021, a lot of companies had um, built large buffers of stock within their supply chains and their, their businesses within the UK. Um, and I think any short-term uh, uncertainty about movement across the borders to, to, to oh, from sorry to Europe, because that's where the big change had happened at that stage. Um, very quickly, organisations, as, as Fahim has already said, um, really got to understand what, what was different. How did they need to do it? We got past the shortage of drivers and vehicles, um, and, and actually, I would say by 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 April that 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 situation had started to settle down. Um, of course, because of COVID, we haven't seen the impact of movement of people. Uh, and I think that's something that we will really, really start to see and, and um, recognise how much more complicated moving somebody from the UK for business to uh, you know, meet colleagues in, in Europe um, is, is, is going to be very different. Um, and I don't think we've actually felt and seen uh, and, and identified exactly how, how big an impact that will have on, on organisations. I guess the other big challenge is going to be around marking, so product uh, approvals and marking. Um, the government uh, are following lobbying, actually, from Make UK and other business groups um, to, to help them understand that actually to introduce the UKCA mark on the timeline that was originally um, perceived was actually just up, totally unachievable for, for our sector. Uh, and the fact that that's been extended for 12 months uh, is good, but actually our message to our members is actually you need to crack on and get 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 working on that. Uh, and in fact, some some companies are saying, look, you know, the UK market in isolation is so small to us, it's actually not worth um, investing in the approvals and um, getting our our materials or sorry our products um, UKCA marked because. Yeah, the cost is greater than the, the benefit. So I, th I think there's going to be some interesting, interesting challenges. I think one of the big opportunities, though, is the fact that companies are redesigning their supply chains and having having spent 40 years integrating UK manufacturers with a with a particularly a pan-European supply chain um, clearly has has um, been tested um, and potentially will get harder as and when goods coming into the UK start to have to have more checks than they currently uh, have had so far. Um, so the opportunity there, I think, is that some, some, some uh, products have actually been reshored and some of that manufacturing has, or that, that supply chain has, has been uh, relocated or, or resourced uh, within the UK. So that's definitely one positive that I, I think we can uh, pull from it. But it, in general terms, Fahim's hit the nail on the head. Exporting to um, to Europe uh, in the past 
hasn't really been exporting. It's been like selling mm. goods to, to Wales or, or Scotland. Um, mm. Now companies are having to do all of the, all of the um, customs checks, all of the customs paperwork, um, which is not impossible, but, but they've just got to reorganize and, and uh, make sure that they hit, hit those yeah. um, requirements. I would just add a little bit of extra because I, I think Jim raised some really interesting points, especially on the people side. And I think the actual it's 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 startling to me sometimes how um, I guess unaware businesses tend to be about actually what has changed in terms of the movement of people, because businesses, manufacturers don't just send goods. They also send like engineers and, and that sort of thing abroad to customers. And I guess the difference, the main difference is that you need, you need like a working visa um, and that you need to be able to. Um, get months in advance for for projects that you may not even be aware of when you need to send your engineers and and, and I, I guess a colleague described it to me in quite an interesting way where you could send someone on holiday to the eu uh tomorrow probably but you couldn't send them to the eu to work there tomorrow you'd need to get a visa three months in advance and that is the difference and if you try to send your engineered employees to to france tomorrow um and try to get them to claim they're going on holiday when they're actually going to work, well, they're probably going to get caught pretty easily. Um, so so it's, it's just understanding that that's, that's what's changed, that if you're sending someone for work, there's a different process. It's not like going on holiday to, to Germany or France or any other EU country. The second thing I would add, and I think this is the benefit that we're hoping to see, is that the, uh, the actual level of work required to export to the EU, because like Jim said, it was as easy as selling to Wales or any other part in the UK before. But now you have to fill in these custom forms. You have to know what commodity codes that your product falls in. You have to understand the entire process of exporting. And actually the extra work required to export to a non-EU country. So if you wanted to export to the US, to South America, to Africa, the actual the paperwork required is roughly the same as you would need to do to send goods to the EU. So if you're a business and you've only ever traded with the EU, but now you've actually had to learn and educate yourself on how to export to the EU, which you've never done before, you as a business potentially could now more easily export to non-EU countries because you have had to learn that process of exporting. Um, I think it, there's still some time to see that benefits from that. I think maybe businesses are only just realizing, oh, actually, the process of exporting to France is now the same as exporting to the US. I could probably go to the US now as well. We're monitoring that situation, but I think that's something that we could see um, over time. So it will be interesting and it will be good to get maybe some positives out of this, uh, this whole debacle, I think. Actually, I can relate to that. I know obviously for businesses, but um, I had to send some goods to um, the EU recently and that filling customs forms as well so i guess it's a learning experience for the consumer as well <laughs> clearly but obviously manufacturers on a much larger scale so if i i had problems with it so i can imagine a manufacturer shipping thousands you know hundreds of thousands of goods it must i don't know how they do it so i have to take take my hat off to them i think <laughs> um so what i wanted to sort of move move on to so this year has been a big big year for um, sustainability and um, climate change um, obviously, we've had COP26 towards the end of this year, so which has brought it back into the um, spotlight um, and hitting those sort of sustainability targets is, I guess, more important than ever. And I mean, we're finding that talking to manufacturers as well. Um, so I saw on your website, you mentioned a term green skills, which I, I don't know if you, you came up with that term. It, I mean, it makes sense to me. But can you maybe just start by explaining what that is actually referring to? 
um, and yeah. what the impact of that will be on the manufacturing sector as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best to explain this one. This is a report that was written by one of our wonderful colleagues on essentially trying to put the uh, give a green skills a definition because it is quite broad. Um, green skills in, I guess, in, in the shortest possible way is essentially um, having the knowledge and expertise to, to create, um, I guess, efficiencies or processes in a business that it, that can, so you can achieve objective, objectives that in a more sustainable uh, and, and, and achievable way. So that could be um, businesses who are already, let's say, making certain products, but just having someone with the skills to understand, oh, actually, we can reduce waste here, we can improve energy efficiency here. So having that kind of knowledge of understanding where the, the issues are. Um, but I think when we, so that's, I guess that's the, the simplest way to describe it, but it, it is quite broad. Um, but when we talk about green skills quite often, at least what, what you often hear about, it, and this is the main issue with it, is that we talk about usually making existing skills uh, and making them green. So the jobs that you and I have uh, and what Jim does, you know, can you make those job jobs green? But actually what we need to talk more about is, is, that, is preparing for new jobs that don't even exist yet, because there are a lot of jobs from like the digitalization discussion that we had earlier you know a lot of the jobs that exist today didn't exist 10 years ago and that's the kind of trend we're probably likely going to see um, when it comes to green and achieving a net zero targets that there are going to be new jobs coming out and actually how do you provide the skills so people are ready for those jobs um, that you may not be aware of existing evidence at the moment shows that there's about 3.2 million workers right now who need upskilling in order to achieve our net zero targets so to make those jobs green. And to give you some context, I mean, that's, that's bigger than the entire manufacturing workforce, which is about 2.6 million people in the UK. So it's quite a substantial number of individuals and, and job types that we are looking to improve. Um, um, so, so just on that, so um, what are the steps manufacturers can take to, in order to, you know, achieve that I guess that is part of the digital skills piece so I guess that's the that's a big question is how do they reach that because that is like I say a, yeah. a seismic um a target yeah it's it's a it's it's a difficult one because the, the the almost the answer isn't there but what we really need to do is to help manufacturers actually come up with those answers so one of the okay. things that we've been calling for from government um is to um so R&D tax credit is hugely popular for manufacturers. It's, it's, there is an R&D intensive industry and they also find something with a tax-based credit system quite easy to access and helpful to their business models. We've been calling for green skills tax credits where manufacturers who engage in investing and developing green skills um, are able to more easily access that type of support. Um, but putting it into a tax-based model allows them to decide the best way to achieve those goals because the answers on actually how do we give them green skills is not necessarily existing at the moment. From a long, that's more of a short-term solution that we're thinking about from a long-term point of view. It's more about just attacking this from the education system. Um, it's about just imp implementing the ideas of being socially responsible, sustainable, thinking about the climate change issues. Um, into the minds of young people so that when they come into these engineering jobs, they come into those jobs with a mindset that is thinking about net zero, um, because essentially that's what greening a job means. It's the same engineers that we have today, but they just think about the processes that they have on a day-to-day -day basis, but they just think about that in a more green way. Um, I think there's a lot more work to do in this area, but I certainly think that that's something that's higher on the agenda for our members at the moment. They definitely put green and 
reaching net zero um, as probably one of the priorities for, for next year and the next five or six years or so. So it's something that we're definitely looking at. Um, and obviously Make UK will continue to, to, to like research in that area. But I think at the moment, just trying to identify what those skills are needs to be the first step. And that's what we're looking at now. Yeah. So, yeah. So Jim, I was just, just wondering from your members' perspective, what, what are they saying to you about um, sustainability and the challenges there? Yeah, so, so um, we surveyed our members and, and actually it was refreshing to, to hear back from them that actually a majority, a significant majority, um, believe that they can achieve net zero within the government um, uh, targets and objectives currently, which is, which is good to hear. Um, but there's two 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 sides to this this um, this challenge. Um, you know, fundamentally, yes, of course, um, manufacturing companies and engineering businesses generate a lot of the of the uh, emissions that actually we need to we need to remove from from our society and our and our processes. But actually, equally, the, the opportunity is that they will design, develop, and um, implement and install a lot of the solutions. Um, so as Fahim said, we don't necessarily know what those solutions will be today, but, but actually one of the key things is to encourage businesses to think differently. Um, so those green skills that Fahim talked about start from the very top and leadership, because um, those roles need to really, really understand where are the opportunities, where are the threats, what is the organisation that I need to build that will be capable of delivering net zero within the timeline that's required. Um, so there's 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 the challenge of, of, of implementing and meeting those objectives but the, the opportunity is is huge um, and that's really where as a society and lots of the government um, support is is um, looking to be a catalyst to drive this forward you know ultimately rather than just buying in solutions from from other parts of the world we need to be uh, developing those we need to be um, manufacturing those and uh, installing them not only domestically but globally and that's where some of those challenges will and opportunities will come from um, and that's where we need to as, as Fahim said earlier we need to overlay not only the the knowledge of how to make something or engineer something or design it but equally you need to consider all of those uh, environmental and sustainability type uh, considerations as well and part of me is, is very optimistic about that future. A combination of, of manufacturing and engineering type roles with digital elements, with green elements, um, actually means that they can be far more, um, what's the word I'm looking fulfilling roles um, and actually should be far more attractive to, um, to people within society that historically uh, a career in engineering and manufacturing wouldn't have been of any interest. And what I mean by that is obviously women, we, we have a, a very uh, imbalanced sort of gender profile within manufacturing typically, although this sector is tr obviously trying to address that. Um, but all kinds of other, other elements of society that probably would have, have uh, historically dismissed a, a career in engineering and manufacturing actually could and should start to see it as being a very fulfilling, very future looking um, career choice for them. So I'm, I'm excited about that, that, that whole change. So that was the second and final part of our series that looks back at manufacturing in 2021. I hope you enjoyed it. We may all have had enough about talking about Brexit or leaving the EU as Make UK defined it. 
but it's clear that this is still having a big impact on manufacturing. However, it's not all negative. As Fahin explains, because of the similarities of shipping to the EU versus the rest of the world, manufacturers actually now have the knowledge to ship to countries around the world to potential markets they may not have considered before. Also, it's good to hear that the majority of Make UK members are confident of achieving their sustainability targets set by the UK government. Make UK's green skills and other similar initiatives will be key to achieving this. Please subscribe via your favourite podcast provider if you'd like to be notified about future series and let us know your feedback by leaving us a review. You can find out more about how Sensei can reduce unplanned downtime and contribute towards improved sustainability within your manufacturing plants by visiting Sensei.io. Thanks a lot for listening.